Hi, everybody. My name is Robert, and I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. Hui, and I'm nervous. And I'm sure my higher power has a message to share through me in this trembling little body, and I'll get on with it here in a moment. Um, humor is always important to me in recovery, and my dad had just shared earlier a few minutes ago that, uh, <laughs> that I was a pretty good kid growing up, but I shit too close to the house. <laughs> That, that lightened up the mood a little bit for me. <laughs> um, I really would like to thank Margaret for um, asking me to share. I still have a big gulp um, when I'm asked to do something like this because for the most part, like Skip had said this morning, I really am a shy person and if I'm around a lot of people, I tend to be the wallflower, not the one out front talking. Um, yesterday, you know, before I have to do something like this, I always try to think of something to say or maybe a little bit of humor. And I was delivering my mail route yesterday and the only thing that I could think of was something that pertained to what I was doing at that moment. And um, I have two little dogs at home and I just love them dearly and they're really my pals. And it was shared with me um, some time ago early on in the program about, you know, the unconditional love that, that animals have for you. And and I see that all the time. Uh, when I go home, my dogs are always so eager and happy to see me. Um, it never fails. And unlike some dogs on my mail route, they're not as <laughs> not as happy to see me sometimes. And just a few little thoughts had crossed my mind at that point that you know I've um, probably been called a dog by some of my customers. And and on the other hand, some of my dogs treat me better than some of my customers too. But <laughs> that's all right. That's the way it goes. Um, we learn life's journey isn't um, always really, really smooth like we would like it or want it to be. Um, but nevertheless, it is a journey. And um, I've come to see it uh, more as an adventure rather than a, a real a tragedy because I was so fearful for so long. I grew up in a, a small town um, in southwest Wyoming. And uh, Diamondville is the name. It's right next to Cameron, in case you don't know where that's at. Um, and... <laughs> It is a fairly small community. And it's one where I always have to say that it's one where everybody knew everybody else's business. And uh, when you're living with the disease of alcoholism, um, you try to hide and cover up things um, that you don't want other people to know. And um, it was so ironic all those years because um, everybody knew everything probably before I did. And I don't know what I was trying to cover up because <laughs> there probably wasn't a lot to cover up. And as I said, um, I was a pretty shy kid, and I went uh, through all my school years in this small community, and it was really difficult for me to um, embark from home life to kindergarten. Uh, some of the earliest recollections I have are um, being so nervous to, to go to kindergarten, and, and I bawled, and I bawled the first few times that my mother put me on this little uh, kindergarten bus that picked me up and brought me up to the camera uh, great elementary school up there. And um, it took about a week of that, and I guess I, I fell into the routine because I don't have any memories after that. Um, but I was always a pretty good student, and and I did make it, um, you know, um, through grade school into junior high and, uh, and, and through high school and a couple years of college. I need to say at first, too, change was never an easy thing for me. And every time there has been a change in my life, it's really been almost a torment. 
you know, to, to readapt or readjust to something else. When I was in grade school, um, as I said, I was a pretty withdrawn kid also and um, always felt embarrassed about so many things. And many of the memories I have of those years are tend to be um, scary ones or, or horrifying ones or whatever. And one of the earliest memories I have in, in grade school was uh, um, some kids had, I don't know, even know how the story goes anymore, some kids had... Uh, that I said something about somebody else or whatever and, and I was on my way home from the school and we just lived a hop, skip and a jump from, from our grade school at that time and um, some kids jumped me after school and uh, washed my face with snow and uh, <laughs> and I didn't know what to do so I started crying and, and out the door comes my old auntie and my mother you know scolding these kids and you know and I ran home and I went, oh god how embarrassing and um, that's the way I lived my my early years was with dumb little things like that that caught my attention and I know there were many good things and sometimes um, those do come to mind and uh, the horrifying ones have begun to fade into their perspective of where they should be uh, when it came time you know to go, go to junior high school um, I was so nervous about that change um, that um, the first couple of days of seventh grade um, I became sick to my stomach and I think I missed the first couple of days because I was so nervous about having to, to do this new thing. And uh, those years are, were troublesome years for me anyway. Um, you know, just the fact of, of adolescence is enough, let alone, you know, throwing in family problems and all those other things that go along. And, and it was a real trying time for me. Um, the drinking years for me in my life were um, in the junior high and, and high school years, the ones I remember most vividly. And they do say alcoholism is a family disease, and that is so true. Um, my family was greatly affected um, by the disease of alcoholism. And I just need to say, too, is, you know, it's easy to um, <laughs> throw all the blame on alcoholism. And, and I know that's not the case today. Um, I had plenty of insecurities myself um, I was just a fearful and withdrawn child to begin with and you throw in a thing like alcoholism and, and it just adds to the the chaos or whatever that went on inside my head so I do need to say up front you know it, I just can't throw and blame everything on the fact that I um, was affected by alcoholism because I know that's not true and my dad um, I guess had been drinking for a few years when I was in junior high and um, things were kind of tough at home and it came to a point where um, there was a little discussion, a little disagreement and about in the ninth grade that uh, my dad probably ought to seek some help <laughs> and he went to uh, the state hospital in Evanston um, to seek, I don't know if it was about three months of, of treatment there and of course I didn't know how to deal with that and if the subject of, of dad came up at home, um, I would immediately um, try to change the subject um, um, at school so I didn't have to talk about these things that, that I found so embarrassing because I just couldn't deal with them. I had no, not a clue of what to say or what to do, so I just tried to avoid it. I think now, you know, we just call that denial, just getting by the best way you can, the only way you know how. And usually for me that was to shove it under the carpet or, or run from it. And my dad, uh, you know, had a difficult time with his sobriety at first, and 
and I try not to share his story, but um, I do need to share you know how I relate to that or was affected by it. And after those three months um, in that hospital, um, even in you know like ninth grade or so, I had this preconceived notion that you know that the treatment were that everything would be just fine when he got out, and that was not to be the case. Um, um, he continued to drink after that, and and this went on for a period of years. And I really um, got scared after a while because uh, I just never thought that he was one that would would find sobriety. And that really made me nervous. Alcoholism breeds a lot of (laughs) character defects. And I had a lot of self-righteousness and judgment and uh, some of those wonderful little qualities, (laughs) defects, you know, that, that I still need to work on today. And I was really good at playing the, the games we play in alcoholic families. Uh, I had two older sisters, and many times they were out um, with their boyfriends. Uh, one's a couple years older than I am, and the oldest one's about three years older than I am. And um, they were out and about, and I suppose in their teenage years, you know, and visiting with their boyfriends or doing whatever, you know. And so I, uh, as I said, I really wasn't an outgoing kid, and so I, I stayed home a lot, and tend to really get caught up in what went on there, you know, the little bickering and arguments and stuff. And and I really was, when I look back, an, an Henri brat sometimes. Um, we hid car keys, you know. Uh, we poured out booze bottles, uh, you know, broke them in anger sometimes. We stood in front of doorways, you know, so he wouldn't go out and drink anymore. And, you know, at times he broke a window and climbed out the window and took off on foot if he needed to. And... Sometimes that was um, walking down the railroad tracks, you know, up to to camera to to get another <laughs> drink or so. And those things breed such fear and uh, isolation and so many things uh, when you look at them, or when I was living with it. You know, I just thought, well, there's a train going to be coming by, and you know, probably schmuck him on the tracks or something. Um, the fact that he, uh, when he was driving. Um, while drinking, you know, that, that he might kill somebody else or kill himself, and constant worry and tension all the time. And I didn't have a lot of avenues of escape. Um, I always felt that God had an answer, and so I did attend church early on, and I was confirmed in the uh, religion that I was brought up in, and always felt that there was an answer there, and uh, for many, many years... Um, I just couldn't quite get the application to fit into my life. And I, I appreciate, I do have to say, I appreciated my religion. And, and I learned a lot because it brought me some um, solace and, and comfort uh, when there was no other avenues for, for help. We have so many escapades, and as we talk about <laughs> in our family, um, so many times um, over the years we've, hunted and fished and camped and all those kind of things. And those are are really, really pleasant memories for me. Um, And we have escapades just to talk about that alone, you know, running out of gas, having to start walking back to town, getting stuck and not being able to get out and having, you know, somebody finally come and pull us out. And we always wish, we laugh now, that we had taken notes and written a book because we didn't really have quite the book to, to share with folks. And... So it was not easy, and and I fell into those traps, I believe, that so many people that deal with alcoholism do. And when I look back on my part in the disease, um, I see how I reacted 
and uh, <laughs> what a little creep I was at times. Um, you know, I used to tell my dad, uh, you know, you're just like a baby without its bottle, you know, when you can't get a drink. And I always felt, felt that if I shamed him enough, you know, that that might um, <laughs> help him to see what his problems were. <laughs> and um, that was not to be the case. And, uh, you know, the silent treatment of, I'll show you and I'm not going to talk to you and those punishing things that we, we need to, to get revenge, you know, at that person. And how sick um, I had become. And those are so many of the things that we carry on with us through our lives. And it's really taken um, a few years to begin to look within ourselves as the Al-Anon program um, has begun to help me to do. Um, junior high, I was, you know, an honor roll student, and I was an honor roll student um, in high school also. And those were some of the bright, positive things that helped me also uh, to get through those years. And something that I clung to because um, when I grew up, uh, everybody always patted me on the back and said, oh, what a nice boy and, and what a good kid and all those wonderful little things that people say. But see, I never felt that way inside. Um, I always felt if they really knew who I was that, you know, they probably wouldn't have much to do with me. And so early on, you know, I learned to start keeping a lot of secrets and, and stuffing stuff inside um, and started <laughs> people-pleasing at a real early age. And so people would like me. It was always scary for me not to think that, that somebody wouldn't like me. And so I always um, played that to, you know, the hilt, you know, so people would like me and, and pat me on the back and yet at the same time feeling so um, miserable inside. Um, one of the, the things in alcoholism that it's really necessary for me to share is is a story that um, reminds me of how sick I was. And um, I have a, also a, another younger sister who's about nine years younger than I am and she was a, a young girl at that time, a child, and um, I believe my older sisters were out one night and uh, my mother and I were watching TV and my little sister was in bed sleeping, I believe. And uh, there was this loud crash outside <laughs> and my dad's already snickering. Um, and I was, you know, shook up and I jumped off, up, up off the couch and, and ran outside and <laughs> he had... Uh, run the truck almost to the porch and it was kind of stuck on the, the steps and you know I didn't realize how hysterical or neurotic or whatever that I had become at that point but the only thing I could think of is oh my god the neighbors are going to see this you know and, and and we have two neighbors and they're separated from our house a little ways but I thought god I need to do something so I opened up the truck door and I grabbed his arm and I flung him out on the ground and and he was mildly drunk to put it <laughs> he was oblivious and he was groveling on the ground and the only thing I knew to do was we need to get this truck here so nobody will see it and um, so I believe I had to go get some ashes from the cinder pile in front of the tires and I was able to um, I believe it was winter time to get the truck off the steps there and I don't know I don't recall how he made it in the house but it never gave me a never dawned on me you know not a second thought that that I could have hurt him or, or whatever. That's the only thing I could think of was, you know, that cover-up job we need to do is to protect ourselves so other people can see what's going on. Um, during those years also, you know, we had a few crises in alcoholism and 
And one morning, um, I was at the allergy clinic. I guess the story starts before that. Um, my dad had come home early one morning, and uh, he was on foot, you know, and I think he'd been out most of the night, and uh, a truck driver had given him a ride into town that morning, and he had said, you know, the truck broke down out towards Opal somewhere, and um, I needed to go out and help him get it. And so, you know, I was a pretty good kid most of the time. So, you know, we jumped in the, probably the Jeep Wagoneer that we had at that time and went out and towed the truck back into town. And and later on that day, I was at the allergy clinic, uh, or the medical clinic, getting some allergy shots. And my dad walked over, you know, he was very doubled in pain and couldn't stand up at all. And I don't know that I said a real lot to him because, you know, I was probably embarrassed. But come to find out, he had a perforated ulcer at that time. And uh, we ended up taking him for an ambulance ride to Salt Lake, which is about 129 miles from Kimmer. And uh, my mom and I rode down with him in the ambulance, and and uh, his stomach was pretty infected, and they had to clear up this infection, and later on they removed a, like a third of his stomach. Um, and the funny thing about alcoholism, you know, is there's always somebody to blame the opportunity isn't there or wasn't there for me to begin to look at myself at that point, though it was to come. Um, and when my dad went for his last checkup, um, Dr. Holbrook, I re- that's the only thing I remember, is that he said, well, it would be all right after all was cleared up if that he took a drink again. And I thought, well, that dirty SOB, it's all his fault that my dad started drinking again. <laughs> you know, he's the one to blame. And, um, you know, the drinking progressed for a while and... Uh, he went to a, a rehab center in Pinedale where he sought treatment after that, and I believe he drank after that. And in each time in alcoholism, uh, realizing that there's some hope built up again and then having all those expectations totally dashed. And that's one good thing that I get to deal with <laughs> even yet today is those expectations getting built up and then being, you know, let down. And, and I realize that, that I do it to myself today a little quicker. Um, but again, I thought, this man is never going to, you know, find the help that he needs or nothing's going to happen here. And it will probably end up burying him. And and I have, like I said, three sisters. And being the only boy in the family, I thought, well, you know, prepare yourself to <laughs> to work locally in, in town the rest of your life and support the family, you know, and all these things that we, you know, martyrdom that we need to try to take on. And so I used to do a little worrying about that also, <laughs> And um, it was some time later, you know, that he did eventually find sobriety in, in God's time, in his time, and not in my time or my mother's time. And um, I remember at that time, you know, uh, my parents had been introduced to the fellowships of, of alcoholism, or AA and, uh, and Al-Anon at that time. And I was really good with my mother, too. Um, I didn't treat her real nice many times either. And I'd heard a few things about Al-Anon from time to time, and and he'd come through the door, and she'd still light into him. And I said, "Well, you know, you're you're just not doing anything that you've told me about, and you know how how she should um, do something a little differently." And um, it's kind of funny um, to look at things in my family because you know I hear of um, you know abuse and different things, and uh, mine was kind of reversed in my family, you know. A couple times I had to pull my mom off my dad because she was thumping on him, not the other way around. <laughs> and during those crisis situations, I said, Mother, you're, you know, you're going to kill him. And I was hysterical as, as she was at that point. But um, my dad, 
you know, we had words um, a few times, but he was never um, abusive in any way. The only time I remember my dad, um, he may have, he probably swatted me when I was younger, but um, I called him a dirty name when I was a little smart mouth teenager, and um, he took me in the back bedroom and he shook me like this, and, and I knew I deserved it, but that's the only time I ever remember, you know, of, of anything of that sort happening, you know, and... Um, so I always think of humor when I when I see those things, and and I know it's a serious situation, but in my family it was my mother abusing my dad, you know. So <laughs> um, I do get a little little chuckle out of that today. Um, when it came time for graduation, um, I had received um, a couple of scholarships um, to go to like Stephen Henniger's Business College in Ogden, and and I was really glad that those were there. And uh, they didn't have any uh, dorms to live in at that point there. And I decided that I'd have to go to work right away, and I wasn't ready for that. Um, and needless, needless to say that I did end up working right away when I went to college anyway, but I, I ended up going to, to Casper College. And uh, the big break from home was uh, a really, really difficult thing. You know, you get so wrapped up in in what's comfortable and what's normal, that the, the change, once again, was a very difficult thing for me. And I did go to Casper College and um, had a couple scholarships which helped me to be there, and my parents helped me out where they could, and, and I did need to work if I was to be there. And so I worked both years that I went to Casper College, and, and I was accounting major. And um, there's one other story, too, that I'd like to um, <laughs> tell about home life uh, before I move on and... Um, as I said, um, I have many fond memories of, of growing up outdoors, and I really have learned to appreciate um, um, God's gift to us in nature, um, the fishing, the hunting, the flowers, the mountains, um, and those types of things. And, and to this day, I find a lot of solitude and, and serenity when I'm in that surroundings, and I just find sometimes that I don't take the time to do those things often enough. My dad would take me out fishing, and we'd go out fishing, and and usually in the evening, you know, the, the fish start um, jumping after the flies, you know, before sundown, and we'd go fishing and come back into town. And and uh, Dad needed drinks when we got back into town. And <laughs> sometimes we, um, one of my memories is, is stopping at the old <laughs> camera hotel on the side there, <laughs> and um, he'd go in and start having a few drinks, and I'd be waiting in the car and watching the people go by on the sidewalks and getting more angry and more angry as the time went by. And and finally, when I'd had enough, sometimes I'd walk home and <laughs> and um, my mother would say, you know, what was going on? And I said, well, he stopped at the bar again and I had, got to, walk, I had to walk home and I'm so tired of waiting and I'm so mad. And boy, I knew that I really set him up when he got home. <laughs> He'd be in for it. <laughs> and, um, you know, those nasty little games that we learn how to play, a lot of manipulation and subtle ways of controlling, you know. And, um, you know, it was easy to make him out to be the bad guy. Um, or worrying about, you know, when I was home, the, the truck coming down, we lived on a hill, the truck coming down the, the hill and running into my bedroom, I just knew I'd <laughs> be hit there right in the spot, you know, in my bed and wouldn't get out in the morning. But um, there's so many arguments, um, the anger build up that, that I didn't know how to release but in real negative ways. Um, 
I do recall also one time that there was quite a little bickering going on and I jumped up out of bed and I ran into the living room to put my two bits in. And you know when you spring out of bed real fast like that, you know your legs are kind of weak and I got to the front room and my legs give out on me. And my my sister who is about half my size is trying to hold me up there. You know what a pathetic sight this was. And my mother said, see what you did to him, see what you did to him, you know, it's just all your fault. And And so, you know, I just loved those kind of things because it put me in the in the limelight and also got me a little sympathy, you know, here and there. And um, I love to have an opportunity to chime in to to release some of that pent up anger that I had inside. And after I did get to college, um, I found out that what a misfit! I just didn't fit in anywhere, and I didn't know as far as social things um, where I fit in. And I began to discover. Um, how miserable, you know, inside that I really felt. And I continued to go to church, and I did all right in college. I didn't do as well in college as I had in in, um, high school. But I made it through all right. And, you know, there were parties and different things, and I used to really um, have a little bit of anger because I had to to go work um, to be in school or I just couldn't be there in spite of my my parents, you know, what they could help me there. And... um, just kind of was grumpy at times about that, but when it came time to parties, even if I went to a party, um, I just didn't quite fit in. Um, I was nervous, you know, I wouldn't say the right thing. Um, the guys that always talk about sports, and I had very little interest in sports, and to this day I still don't have very much interest in sports. Um, when I was in school, I did um, attempt to go out for some little league and um, JV football, and, and I did those things. Um, and uh, this seems probably ironic that, you know, uh, the love-hate situation with my dad at that time, but I really wanted to please him and, and make him proud of me. And so I did try those sports, and, and later on, you know, I just kind of thought, to heck with this, this really isn't for me. You know, I'm not cut out for this. And so, you know, the guys would talk about sports and things like that, and and I just didn't have a lot to add because I never paid attention to the sports reports, and I had a heck with that. So I began to isolate and withdraw more and more and more as time went on. And I did go to church. Um, I continued that um, as an outlet. And by the time I had got through college, um, I really had become quite the sight. Um, um, from what people could see outside, they probably thought everything was great, but inside I was, I was crumbling, and, and it was pretty fast. And at that time, one of my high school buddies um, that I'd gone to college with had decided, you know, that, you know, it's time to move on, and he moved to Denver. And, and there I was, um, and I was alone, and I felt really terribly alone at that point. And um, I started applying, you know, for a job because I was always <laughs> overly responsible and knew I had to do the things that I needed to do. And, and I was hired by the telephone company, and I did work there for four years. And um, I had moved downtown to the Old Flame Apartments downtown there. It was over a, a pawn shop and stuff. And, and I lived there for a few years. And um, I did have a couple of friends. Uh, my only friend um, had gotten married recently at that point. And, and I just didn't feel comfortable to keep imposing because I knew that, you know, married couples probably need, need their time. And um, so I withdrew more. And um, I began um, spending countless hours sleeping just past my time away 
and waking up and, and feeling more miserable because I think, you know, you're in your early 20s, you know, you're supposed to be out partying and just celebrating life and having a real good time before, you know, you finally settle down later on in life. And I didn't know how to do that. Not a clue. Because I just didn't fit in. And a couple of times I had called up my parents and said, you know, I picked up, they picked up the receiver, you know, and I would just burst out bawling. And, you know, um, I can blame this on society, but, you know, the way we're raised, you know, the male, the macho, the whatever, you know, um, those things inside us, you know, um, not being able to emotionally handle anything as a male person were not easy for me to deal with. And I felt even more embarrassed that I would start bawling over the phone to my parents. And um, I'm sure they were at wit's end thinking, you know, <laughs> what do we do for this kid? And um, they said, well, why don't you move home? You know, I could probably transfer to Rock Springs as an operator and be close enough home that I could go there and, and spend time and be comforted. And something told me inside that that probably wasn't the, the thing to do and that I sooner or later I would have to stand on my own two feet. So I stuck it out. And uh, during that period of time, um, after college and even during college, um, I started college in, in the fall of 1976. And I began to, um, my parents had started coming to uh, Paul conferences like this and assemblies. And so I began to um, meet them at these different places. And it was kind of neat um, to see them there and to begin to meet some new people. And I remember one of the first speakers, um, it was at Sheridan, and there was a gal named Elsa C. that spoke. And, uh, you know, I, I remember absolutely probably nothing about what she talked about other than people were saying, you know, whose mother she is, you know. And that's probably the most I took away. But I, I met um, a few people in Casper from al and one of the first people I had met was um, Shirley, Shirley Ann from Casper, and I'm sure many of you know her. And um, that was eventually to be my introduction into Al-Anon. And uh, I did go to my first um, Al-Anon meeting in February of 1980, and it was to be um, several years down the road before I started going on a regular basis. Um, I had a lot of difficulty um, in dealing with um, alcoholism. You know, I was 320 miles removed from the home situation, and yet I still wanted to control and know what was going on. And I really got perturbed when I'd call home and they said, well, he'd been drunk last week or the weekend before, and I and I was angered that they hadn't reported to me what was going on, you know, that, that in, intense control that we think we need to have. And um, it began to dawn on me that, um, you know, he's over there and I'm over here, so, you know, what really is my problem? You know, where is the focus and, and what really is my problem? And um, at that point, I did um, start seeking out... Um, ways to, to try to do something for myself. And I went to um, a psychologist for a period of time, um, a few years, and, uh, you know, 50 bucks an hour. And my insurance didn't pay for all of it, and it was a financial struggle, but, uh, but I tried that anyway. And, uh, you know, I think um, our helping professions are only able to help us to the, degree, to the degree that we are able to share with them and be honest with them. And I do need to say I had, you know, a multitude of obsessions. And um, sometimes um, it was easy for me to use alcoholism as a, a comfortable shield because I could blame it on somebody else. And um, for a long period of time, that was the first thing that used to come out of my mouth was, uh, you know, my dad's an alcoholic, and that was supposed to excuse me for the way I was. And today I know how erroneous that really is. 
because we each need to begin to take responsibility for ourselves. And I had not a clue, not a clue, how to begin to do that. And um, I also went to a religious um, counseling organization for a period of time, and and somehow I wasn't uh, really finding a lot of answers for myself. And um, I had begun going to Al-Anon off and on, and it was not easy. Um, I would go for a little while and think, yeah, I don't need this, and quit going for a little while. And But I always kept coming back, and... Um, and I don't know why, you know, some of these things are just things that that are put there. And I think they're little, you know, God sends that kind of guide us or begin to help us step by step into a direction that we will eventually find help. And I really believe, um, you know, that God was there all along watching out for me. And so I eventually stopped going um, to um, counseling or to the psychologist. Um, <laughs> it was always really difficult for me to... to give up that money anyway and money was not one of my obsessions you know um i think it became so easy for me to see that the the high road to success was um through material things and having things and and money and being able to do this and that and travel and and whatnot and uh, the longer i'm around i can see that though i have all these wonderful things i can still be as miserable as i'll get out inside that isn't what makes me truly a happy person and that's really taken some time to uh, recognize. Remember, during some times, you know, when I didn't have a lot of money, um, my parents would send me twenty dollars every now and then when I got low on cash. I needed some money for groceries or something. But, you know, um, one of my wonderful little obsessions, you know, when you're feeling really, really down and out, is to run up to the mall and buy some clothes or whatever. And it took me a long time to get a credit card to be able to, you know, have a little bit of that buying power. But eventually, I did, and you know, run up and. <laughs> and charge a bunch of things on the credit card and then worry all the way home how I'm going to pay for it. <laughs> but supposedly that was a, a comfort, you know, and it was momentary at best, that comfort. And many obsessions uh, with people, you know. It was always um, if everybody else would do what I thought they needed to do, um, not to mention the alcoholic, you know, that things would be better in my life. Um, obsessions with sex there were so many things you know that when you're growing up and somehow they don't quite get into perspective and and um, eventually you, you get to deal with those things as time goes on and I'm grateful that I had made some some strides in, in many of those areas and so the road to recovery um, had begun whether I had realized it or not it was slow and and I love, um, some years later, I'd listened to a tape by Elsa, and she said she'd been around this program for years and years and years. And she was such a, um, a slow learner. And, and I was so grateful to hear that, that, um, you know, our recovery comes about many times by um, the willingness we're win- willing to put into, um, into our lives, and also that it comes in God's time. This idea of God was a very difficult one for me. Um, I always knew that he probably had the answer for me. And yet I just couldn't ever make things quite match up. And I did continue to go to church. As I said, it was one of the few social outlets you know, that I had. Um, one of the bargaining ideas I always have to share, too, of, of, of my early um, <laughs> interpretation of God is, uh, was kind of a bargaining one. And when I was at home, um, as I said, we were pretty good hunters and we were out towards Granger hunting antelope one time and 
And I believe it had been a few Sundays since I'd been to church at that time and had an antelope and it, it was wounded as sometimes happens when you go hunting. And um, my dad says, here, take the rifle and go out after it and, and uh, get it and I'll drive the truck over that way. So I take off running over the prairie and, and over hills and mounds and and finally this um, you know, nice little buck antelope is um, standing on the ridge across from me and and I'm saying to myself, you know, God, please help me to, to get this animal that's hurt and it's suffering. And, and I have this little torment that goes on in my heart when I see animals and, and people too suffering. Um, and I says, you really got to help me get this. And, and I promise I'll go to church next Sunday, you know. <laughs> and uh, I don't recall whether it took one shot or two. I would like to think one. but <laughs> um, And the antelope went down. And come that next Sunday, you know, I was absolutely in sheer terror and I knew that I better go to church or, or I had had it, you know. And I used to bargain with God like that, you know. And um, when things were going good, um, who needs God? You know, everything's just fine, thank you. But when things got really tough, you know, then it was the, the whimpering and the whining and on my knees again. And God, you got to help me, you know. Where do I go from here? But I believe it's the path, you know, that, that helped me get where I am today. And... Um, to realize that God is not a fearful and a punishing God. And um, those old um, ideas, and, and and I don't know where many of them come from, but they were instilled early, and it's taken some time to readjust that to, you know, God is my friend, and he's with me all the time. Um, he never leaves me, but I am the one that shuts him off. And, uh, and I do that through my own volition, you know, it's not... Um, he runs away from me and leaves me abandoned. And I'm so grateful that for that idea of God, that um, that he is there. And no matter what goes on, you know, those old ideas of um, when I hadn't been a perfectly good boy, that um, when something bad happened, you know, he was, he was getting me this time once again. And so that fearful merry-go-round of, of nonsense that goes on and... Um, I'm so grateful, um, you know, for, for that idea having changed so greatly in my life. Um, I was um, at the phone company uh, for four years, and um, at that point, you know, there was a lot of things happening in the phone company. There was divestiture that was happening, and people were being relocated and centralized and all those things, and I really got nervous, and I don't know why. I guess I was meant to stay in Wyoming, and, and people were being... Um, relocated to Denver and Phoenix and Salt Lake to the bigger places where, you know, a lot of the big companies um, have done things like that. And um, my college buddy had told me that they were giving the civil service exam at the post office. And and uh, I thought, well, what the heck, I'll, I'll go out and try that. And so I went and took that test. And ironically, I was hired about a year, a year before he was. And um, so I did um, go to work for the postal service. And, and that's where I'm um, have been employed for about 12 and a half years now, and I'm grateful for the job. Um, but there again, that change that was so difficult for me to make. Um, I was used to, at the telephone company, um, sitting on my butt behind a desk most of the time, and, and um, I'm a carrier now, and there's 90 days of probation, and of course I was petrified that I wouldn't make it through probation. And um, not to mention, you know, all the exercise that I began getting that I wasn't used to. And, and I lost about um, 30 or 40 pounds. And, uh, you know, if I needed to, I would skip my lunch or whatever to get 
you know, a cut done or my route done in time because I was so worried and nervous about <laughs> that performance that we always need to do. And my mother seen me a couple times. She says, my God, Robert, just go to the doctor. I think you're really sick or something, you know. And um, it took me a, a few uh, months or probably a couple years to adjust to that, that change. Um, but it has worked out well. And uh, as I said, I'm really grateful for the job. The, the changes in my life were um, always, always difficult things. And um, I, I dated a little bit um, in, in high school and, and in college a little bit. And uh, somehow in, inside, I don't know where the ideas come from, you know, that little performance standard that, um, that I had to deal with all the time. And it was so fun. Um, <laughs> when I was in, in grade school, I remember I had, you know, puppy love with this one girl, and we exchanged the rings. And I remember, you know, mine was square and, you know, had a little blue stone. Of course, it was fake and probably came out of a machine or something. And when it came time to um, uh, for the senior junior senior prom in high school I had not gone to very many uh, dances or things like that um, because I just couldn't I couldn't handle the thought of asking the girl and her rejecting me or already having a date and I thought I would just be crushed so I just never took advantage of any of those opportunities until the junior senior prom when I was a senior in high school you know it was my you know big splash on the way out I guess and and this girl that I had had puppy love with um you know, I called her up and I was so nervous, you know, about the approach and all those kind of things that my old auntie that lived below our hill was out of town. So I went down and got the key and went into her house and used her telephone so nobody would hear what I had to say. And, and in case it didn't go out, I wouldn't say anything to, you know, um, anybody about the situation. But we went and we had just a, a great time. And my, my friend, um, his dad owned a, a bar and a pizza parlor in Frontier there. And, and afterwards he kind of led us in the back door and, you know, we danced and just had a wonderful time. So um, I need to remember to, even to this day, that those massive fears that I have sometimes aren't as, as powerful, you know, as I always project them to be. And in college, I dated a little bit also, and and uh, not an easy thing because, like I said, I was always just so nervous, you know, about the performance standard and and you know how far this way to go and how far that way to go and. And um, so for the most part, I always did just back off from those kind of things because I was too scared. I was just too scared. And um, that's been an interesting, you know, process to, to learn about relationships uh, with people. And a struggle, a real struggle. You know, people always tend to be my, my problems. And, uh, and today I know that's not the case. It's the way I react to them. And, um, you know, alcoholism is a, is a funny thing. And, and I think I learned early on that if I can pin it on somebody. Um, I love Sean A. You know, he has spoke a couple times in our area. And he talks about, I'd love to pin that on the old man, you know, but I can't do it anymore. This program doesn't allow me to do things like that. And um, the disease of alcoholism allows us to keep the focus, you know, on, uh, on one person and to blame and uh, many times in in my relationships I have done that you know and um, it's really taken some time to uh, begin to see um, the focus always needs to be on myself and when I get away from that I get in turmoil it's real plain and simple our program is plain and simple the the spiritual laws and understandings that that we do come to understand after a while
And uh, it was um, really difficult uh, for me to realize, you know, that other people, you know, in relationships don't make me happy. Uh, my mother had mentioned my 30th birthday. And when I do reflect back on that, um, you know, that was a real troublesome year because I had projected for a lot of years that, you know, you, you know you're supposed to be married, you're supposed to have children and um, have a steady job and a nice little house with a picket fence, you know, the ideal picture that we so often hear about. And when I reached 30, it wasn't there, you know, and so I was utterly, you know, probably disgusted and, and fearful of, of all the things that had not transpired according to Robert's plan. <laughs> Robert's rules of order, I love when I hear that too. <laughs> um, and once again, you know, um, the process that we have to go through to to find our higher power. Um, I did forget to mention er- earlier that um, I am a member of the Stepping Stones to Recovery group in Casper. And... Um, we have a really neat group of people, and there is so much humor there. Um, I was noticing while I was sitting there uh, the other night before the meeting had started, uh, we each person introduces themselves and reads a step in our tradition. And, and we have so much fun and levity, though we have some very you know tear-jerking sharings at times. But, you know, over the, the dumbest little things, you know, person will read the same step twice or, you know, go out of turn or whatever, and, and we laugh. And it's so wonderful to sit in that room today and to hear that laughter expressed openly. And um, maybe when that person, you know, comes to share that um, they have to cry that time too. But to have that levity and that open openness there um, that's so important that, that I've not known how to do for most of my life because I was so serious. Um, everything was serious to me. And uh, I guess mostly, you know, afraid of making an ass out of myself was what I was afraid of. And, and I've done that at times too and been able to keep moving on and, and it wasn't such a big deal. We had a going away party. Um, our alternate district representative was transferred with Conoco to Texas and uh, the other night one of the gals had a little going away party for her um, at her house. And, and at this place um, I had run across a, a gal that I had known um, um, earlier that I'd seen at meetings and she was there again. And um, it was so fun to share with her. And it's just like, you know, we'd never been separated for any amount of time. And she was sharing about a son that um, is having a real difficult time. He's like 18 or 19 years old, and uh, he's been taking some drugs. And and she said to me, you know, she says, and but was very calm. You know, she had a fairly good perspective on this. She says, you know, I just think of it as... Um, He's on his search for his higher power. And I thought, wow, that's really profound. And um, little did I realize that most of my life I was in that same same mode as on a search you know, for my higher power because I knew he had the answers, but um, I didn't know quite how to reach him because I had so much garbage I had to, to work out of the way. And it was not easy for me to uh, begin to trust people. Um, it was easy to go to a professional and pay my money and go home and, and they're bound by those restrictions of confidentiality and those types of things and be able to leave it there and, and go on. But um, in this program, um, there's a much deeper um, heartfelt thing when we, we share with one another um, on you know our personal secrets that we've kept hidden um, in a sponsorship relationship. And uh, there was a person that... Um, 
had mentioned something about calling her and calling her, and so finally, um, one time I did, and or maybe I say I, I I couldn't, and I kept seeing her. I felt guilty, and I felt guilty, and and uh, one night after a it was a Monday caring and sharing meeting, um, I hurt to the point that I was about in tears, and so I really need to talk, and um, so I did, and uh, that was um, one of the first sponsors. Um, I'd had I had a couple and they had moved out of town and and um, so those, those those things had not worked out at that point and so I began to dump and uh, <laughs> I think once I started dumping you know the dumping never stopped um, then it was easy for me to try to find anybody that was sympathetic and would pause long enough to listen to me and I spewed out everything every chance I got and um, of course not everything because I wasn't able to share or trust that deeply but I I was a dumper and for a long period of time. And it's only been, I think, a few years ago that I was able to stop and say, you know, what am I doing? Sharing all these things about people. You know, I never confronted the person I was mad at, but I went and talked to everybody else about it. You know, and the courage um, that we hear about in our serenity prayer is the courage to um, begin to confront um, the person that I'm having difficulties with instead of running everywhere else. And... And I still have difficulties with that. I can't say I do it every time and, and sometimes not at all. But it, it has become easier to be uh, a more honest uh, person and not to run around and, I don't know, backstab or whatever. Or if I do share um, personal things, I do try to confine it to my sponsor or one or two people. So, um, you know, all, all my deep stuff, sometimes those things when you share with them, people indiscriminately you know they come back to hancha and so i learned you know to um share and trust in that in that one person which was not an easy thing as i said i always thought that people if they really knew who i was they would run out the back door and fast and um so i began to work the steps of recovery and became um a very active member of al-anon in february of 1985 and um, attending al-anon meetings on a regular basis and the recovery did begin to happen, and I was really, really active for um, a long period of time, and almost to the point that I kind of got burned out and um, backed off for a while. And as I began to attend these assemblies, um, it was really kind of interesting because we didn't have a lot of people that attended these assemblies. Um, I remember Margaret um, early on, and and. Um, she served as the secretary and the chairperson and, and delegate for our state. And, and some of the early people, you know, Audrey and, and Mary that were there at those times. And, and my mother, of course, too, um, uh, was a participant in the area of al at that time, too. But there weren't a lot of people. And when it came time for positions, um, you know, we didn't have enough people to handle the coordinators and the area officers. And, and early on, I kind of got um, nudged into service. And I believe I began um, serving right away as the Alatine coordinator and without a clue of what to do. But um, there are guidelines, and I always try to remember that, you know, when that fear comes upon a person, you know, for taking a, a responsibility for the first time, that there are people to share with, and uh, they can share their experience, strength, and hope with you, along with guidelines. And those things don't need to be such fearful monstrosities, you know, that they appear to be. And... And service work um, has been the greatest thing, and um, many times I have um, <laughs> drugged my feet, but 
the people in Al-Anon um, have loved me long before I could um, begin to, you know, um, think of myself in a um, halfway friendly manner even. And and I did serve in, in several positions in, in Al-Anon and my service is really kind of, you know, almost back-assworts and, and um, I served for a brief period of time as a GR and, and I have not been a DR, but um, in our area... Um, at this point of the game, uh, we, as I said, didn't have a lot of people for service positions. And if you were a coordinator, you were eligible to stand for, you know, area officers. And um, and so I was encouraged many, many times. I thought, you know, God, I, I can't do that. And and what do I have to offer? Um, you know, the the low manner in which we feel about ourselves, the self-esteem, the confidence, and. Uh, you know, the potential for growth, um, I just couldn't see those things. And as I said, it was the people in this program that, that began to love me enough to encourage me and saw that I could um, perhaps fulfill a duty here or there. And and the interchange with people in service work has been uh, wonderful. And to realize that in spite of the fact that, you know, we don't always agree on every item that my life, you know, it may fall apart at the moment, but it does continue. And so the service work has been so rewarding and, and it has taught me how to learn to deal with people, things that I had not a clue how to do with um, before that point. And um, I also need to share that um, um, this is my, my second year as being the, the Panel 33 delegate from Wyoming. And uh, boy, it's really hard to share the the growth that has come this past couple of years. And... Um, I have learned so much and met so many <laughs> wonderful people that um, you just can't quite explain the warmth and the love and this fellowship that there is. And um, to meet delegates, you know, from um, every area in the United States and Canada and to go and uh, to realize, you know, that the sharing and uh, the... I don't know, cohesiveness or whatever that there is, the spiritual stuff that binds us together in this program is just really magnificent. And um, it's been one of the greatest experiences in my life. And uh, I had to be encouraged to um, stand. And I kind of wanted to, uh, one thing I love to travel, and this has afforded an opportunity to, to travel and also to meet people and and there again, you know, the change. Um, I remember the first delegates meeting I had to go to in uh, Minot, North Dakota, and it was a year ago in March, and and I got there, and I believe I was the only person from Wyoming that attended that time, and I flew there and went into this room, and um, there was a few ladies in there mingling around, and and I was scared to death, and I thought, oh, this is just as I thought it was going to be, and you know, the momentary insanity there returns, and uh, before long, this... (laughs) Neat gal from Oregon, she's a past delegate, a wonderful lady. BJ sat next to me and just befriended me automatically. And within moments I knew I was home again, that that fear and insanity was only momentary, and I was so grateful for that. And as many times in my life, um, I've been the only guy in, in Al-Anon meetings for a long period of time. When I started at the phone company, I was surrounded by 13 ladies. And um, not an easy thing, you know. Um, <laughs> My my supervisors were were female, you know, and 
just feeling so different. And, you know, I should have said, wow, what a neat opportunity. But I was scared. <laughs> and um, the ladies I worked with at the phone company at that point, you know, were... <laughs> We're just, um, they just love to tease me, and I've always turned red from head to toe. You, you know, you mentioned the word sex, that word that nobody talks about. And when I used to go to break up there um, at the phone company, they'd just say, well, are you saving it for marriage, and on and on and on. And, and I would just shrivel and want to crawl under the table. And so once again, when I got um, to this um, first delegates meeting in, in Minot, um, um, humor comes to me and I think my God really does put it in my life because he knows how desperately I need to be able to laugh at myself and to laugh with other people. And um, I'd gone to the bathroom and uh, was sitting there on the stool and, um, you know, just sometimes it's a nice break from turmoil to go and pause, you know. <laughs> and I was listening to that, that women's bathroom door open and shut, open and shut, and I thought, wow, this is really great. I think I'll just sit here a while longer. I'm the only guy here, and it's going to take them at least 15 more minutes, you know. So, so I shared that when I, when I spoke, and it, and it broke that barrier one more time and added just a little bit of levity that I, that I truly needed. But as I said, the experience in service, um, and I know I probably beat it to death um, when I share it, is so rewarding because many times it's like pulling teeth to get people involved in service. And um, the fear of the big C, you know, the commitment of taking on something. And uh, it's been real trying at times, you know, my, my defects of character when I haven't been able to attend assembly and uh, because of that darn job that I got. And I have to work sometimes and uh, to allow somebody else to give my report for me that, that I'm not so important that I can't be replaced. That's why we have other people around us that make us uh, work in recovery, unity, and service. Um, you know, we um, delegate and share our responsibilities when we need to, too, so I don't need to cringe as bad. Um, I don't feel comfortable at all and when I'm not able to attend, but um, I really try to do the best I can, and that's the most that I can expect of myself um, today is to, to have the willingness and if the plans fall in order, great. And if they don't, then I, then I have to accept that too. Um, there have been some troubling things in my life um, that the program has helped me so greatly to work through. And, and I would really like to share on a couple more of those things. Um, I have a sister that um, has had some difficulties in her life and... Uh, at one point, um, she had um, quit school and she had a child, you know, when she was probably about 10th or 11th grade age. And uh, through a lot of turmoil and stuff, um, these kids were taken away um, through the welfare department and uh, we were not to see them for 13 years. And it brought such a great deal of pain and uh, hurt to my family through the situation. And every night for... I bet eight or nine years after that point, you know, I shared, you know, God, you know, you've got to help us see these kids, you know, again. And, and I just had this feeling in my heart that one day it would come to pass. And, uh, you know, of course, my projection was I'd run across um, Missy in a grocery store and I'd recognize her and uh, and we'd have this wonderful reunion. But uh, as it was to happen in, in God's way, it was... Um, uh, she contacted my family. Um, she called my mother after 13 years, and she was um, pregnant. And uh, 
she was living with her boyfriend at that time and uh, really wanted to get to know her her blood family for for medical purposes and otherwise and so we've had a reunion and uh, we've had some difficulty here and there you know adjusting but uh, it's been really a remarkable thing so you know god continues to work through those things that have been so troublesome in so many parts of my life and that really has been a godsend to um to wait and they say, you know, God answers prayers, you know, um, in no, yes, or, or wait a minute, or, or maybe, you know, and sometimes I just need to continue um, going down the path that um, that is put in front of me, and the answers will come. Many times on my mail route, um, I have um, been in such turmoil, and it's easy after you do a route for a few times, um, you know, it's automatic, you know the people's names, and, you know, and just... My head can be 500 miles away, and in uh, many days, uh, while I've been a mailman, you know, I have lived in obsession during the day and, and had these battles with people, you know, angry projections of, of how an argument's going to transpire because something didn't go my way. It really has taken some time to to stop and enjoy the small little things that God puts in front of me just for the taking, if I'm willing to open my eyes and look at them. And one of those things earlier I mentioned is dogs and um, um there's a uh, a mailman that was on this route before I I was, and um, this has only not been quite a year. And my philosophy with dogs before was, you know, I guess we're either going to get along or we're not, and you know, have the dog spray in case I need it. And this man always carries dog bones around with him, and you know, he tries to bribe him a little bit, you know, in a different fashion. I thought well, that's an interesting philosophy, so I have <laughs> buy a few boxes of dog bones every year now, and uh, I have more fun. Um, and some dogs admittedly so, you're just not going to get along with, you know, let's face it, like like some people too, you know. Um, but most times, you know, these animals are there and, and I stop and I may not see, you know, people for a while and dogs are w- waiting eagerly at the fence to, to give them a treat. And um, some of those small little things are, are so enjoyable and I can see them for just what they are and they distract me and they pull my mind out of if I'm in a bad place or thinking about something, they bring me back to reality, to gratitude of what God has given me. And those are, are fun little things. If I, if I pay attention to, um, they're there for the taking. Um, a few years back, also, um, as I mentioned, change was such a hard thing. And I've been on a mail route for, for 10 years, and i had become grown real accustomed to it. And mentally, I just felt like that maybe I wasn't quite um, stimulated enough, and I needed some more um, stimulation. And so I thought, well, if nothing else, this is where I'm at, and I can... Uh, you know, at least learn a new route. So after that time, you know, I I bid on another route after all those years, and uh, that was not an easy thing for me to do that year. And um, I had always uh, procrastinated buying a place, and um, and so finally, um, I had had a roommate at that time, and I uh, had sold my trailer, and I thought, well, I just don't want to buy a house. What happens if I don't stay here, you know, forever? And and finally, I bought a home a year and a half ago, and so all these changes seemed to fall in one one lump sum, and uh, they have been good and positive things for me to do. And um, there's so so many things, you know, to talk about. Um, the steps of recovery really do work. Um, service is recovery for me today, and I, and I do do need to keep um, going in that mode um, because the the enlightenment and uh, the opportunities to grow are there, but if I um, 
fall back into my old ways of thinking, um, I can slip back, and that happens from time to time into those old modes, and, and I don't want to be there anymore. It's not a comfortable place. Um, in closing, I'd like to say that um, there's a, a prayer that my mother has on her uh, refrigerator, and um, and I remember it, and I always like to, to close with that because it reminds me of um, one of our primary responsibilities um, is to recover ourselves but to be willing to share um, the al message of hope with other people. And uh, when I get into those moments of um, being into self, um, that sometimes the best thing I need to do is get up and go do the dishes, go out and mow the lawn or do something, or maybe think about somebody else. And this prayer helps me to do that. And it goes like this. I said a prayer for you today, and no God must have heard. I felt the answer in my heart, although he spoke no word. I didn't ask for wealth or fame. I knew you wouldn't mind. I asked him to send treasures of a far more lasting kind. I asked that he'd be near you at the start of each new day to grant you health and blessings and friends to share your way. I asked for happiness for you in all things great and small, but it was for his loving care that I prayed for most of all. Thanks.